the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, episode number 19, with Reverend Chris Tiedemann from the Methodist Reclamation Project. I call myself a grandpa millennial. I'm sort of in one of the last years you can be considered a millennial. I think there are a lot of people in my demographic who have decided that for whatever reason, the the church and faith, the issues of faith and being a person of faith aren't something that moves the needle for them. Welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now... Here's Brad. Hello, good people, and welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, where it is our purpose, strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. We do that by talking to people who are involved with the life of the church. If you want to find out more about us, go to unitedmethodistpodcast.com. There you can find out, see some back episodes of the United Methodist People podcast, and you can get our free gift, which is called the Wesleyan Way. Today, our guest is Reverend Chris Tiedemann from the Methodist Reclamation Project. He is the pastor of Christ United Methodist Church in Wabash, Indiana, and created the the Methodist Reclamation Project as a Facebook voice to speak to some of the challenges in our church today, which he has created with a coalition of other folks who have a leaning towards a progressive centrist approach to the church in response to the 2019 uh, General Conference. He also is a husband and a father and a Christian and a pastor and a ukulele enthusiast, which you will learn a little bit about today. And he's also going to tell us how the Beverly Hillbillies led him to Christ and to service in the United Methodist Church. I think you're going to like our conversation today with Reverend Chris Tiedemann from the Methodist Reclamation Project. Let's get into that conversation right now. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, we're back with you with the United Methodist People podcast, where it is our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary, especially needed as we go through some challenging times in our church. We have a great young leader in the church with us today who has stepped forward to get involved with uh, with matters in the church, uh, especially given uh, the uh, kind of the challenges we have in our church. And his name is Reverend Chris Tiedemann. He is a pastor of the Christ United Methodist uh, Christ United Methodist Church in Wabash, Indiana. He is also involved with organizing a presence called the a Facebook presence and an organization called the Methodist Reclamation Project, which purpose is to reach out across the denomination to inform and encourage a fully 
inclusive expression of United Methodism. And he is also a part of the Room for All Coalition. And he's helped with development and implementation of rallies across the state of Indiana and looking to help inform and to help progressive Methodists connect through social media, among other ways. And we welcome Chris Tiedemann to the United Methodist People podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Glad you're here with us, uh, Chris, as we uh, have a good conversation about uh, some of the interesting things in the life of our church these days. But I always really like to start my conversations at the United Methodist People podcast with who you are as a person and especially how you came to be where you're at in life. So I'd like to hear just a little bit about your faith walk, how you came to know Christ in the first place and how that led you to become a clergy person and now a a pastor in Wabash, Indiana. Your story a little bit. I love to tell this story. Now, Brett, I'm not a lifelong Methodist. I came to it in my later teen years. I met a beautiful redhead on stage in our high school theater department, and she was playing Granny in the stage adaptation of the Beverly Hillbillies movie, and I played Oil Man Number 2 in Mr. Drysdale. And we struck up a relationship, and she invited me to her church, which happened to be the Ligonier United Methodist Church in uh, what is what I consider my hometown. Uh, of course, as a United Methodist pastor, you get quite a few of those as you go through the whole thing. But uh, right, right. I had been in faith traditions where the common, you know, commonly heard from the pulpit was turn or burn, fire or brimstone, that sort of thing, and and was missing something in that. And I fully believe, had I not met uh, my wife and then her her father, who is a an elder in the United Methodist Church, that I probably would be an atheist today because mm. I can remember in my teenage years it was. It, <laughs> Teenagers could do nothing right. And so it was that pivotal moment in my life where I spent night after night lying prostrate on my bedroom floor, making sure that I, I repented of every sin that I could think of, lest God strike me down dead in the middle of the night and send me to hell for my sins. And and I really, really feel looking back on it that had I been in that tradition for much longer, I might not be a Christian today. But uh, I listened to Jim Farr preach and I heard the other side of the coin, the grace side mm-hmm. of the, the, our whole faith equation. And when I heard that, and it just happened to be a communion Sunday, that Sunday, and I just, I, I, I felt a presence that I would later come to, to know more intimately as the Holy Spirit, that I was just in the right place. And I, I describe it as sort of my personal Aldersgate moment before I knew what, what the, the, sure. the Aldersgate moment meant for Methodists. And, and that and was, that was it. Awesome. And Pastor Jim Farr is now your father-in-law. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Well, that is awesome. Yeah. Now, how'd you la- end up taking the next steps then and to fully committed towards uh, a life as a, a clergy person and getting more involved and now pastor of a small town United Methodist Church. Well, my my wife, in all fairness to her, did not marry a, a pastor. I was I was sort of lost, didn't know exactly what I was going to do. So I went from you know, I had a couple of a lot of jobs there in the first few years of our marriage, but then I would get involved in church leadership. Uh, Jim asked me to be a liturgist on Sunday mornings. I did some committee work and three years before I accepted my call into ministry, both 
Emily and her dad, Emily more reluctantly only because she'd been a long serving PK and uh, didn't expect to be, uh, you know, living the parsonage life uh, her, her whole life. But uh, she knew exactly where I was headed. And, and he, uh, my father, law knew exactly where I was headed. And, and three years later, I, I got on the train as well and, and started the, uh, the candidacy process and I had yet to get my undergrad. And so I, it took me about 10 years through having kids and, uh, getting my undergrad and then going on to seminary. And then uh, finally was uh, commissioned in 2014 and ordained in 2017. And that's awesome. You currently serve in Wabash, Indiana. Tell me one, tell me one cool thing about your church and what's going on there. We actually just finished uh, VBS this past week and, and they sort of took over Sunday morning in lieu of uh, Pentecost proper. And, it was an amazing. It was an amazing experience. We had uh, we had upwards of fifty kids uh, throughout the week, and to I, I, I love VBS. I know it seems pretty basic to uh, bring you know bring VBS to it, but uh, I helped with the the music, and I was this is the first time I was able to be part of the VBS experience and here at the church, and I just I loved it. it was it was what my spirit needed at the moment. So uh, while it was incredibly exhausting we had a really great experience where we uh were able to reach out into the community in, in a pretty significant way in these kids lives well that's awesome well you mentioned you were part of the music among other things i know you you uh, termed yourself the ukulele preacher so uh what's <laughs> yeah. what is yeah. that all about so i you know i started playing ukulele about six years ago i was doing my unit of uh, clinical pastoral education at methodist hospital and it was gonna i was driving home one day and it was gonna snow over the weekend we were gonna be snowed in and i just happened to make a stop and look over and saw this really cheap ukulele kit at a bookstore and decided to pick it up and uh, you know, m most pastors will play an instrument most of the time it's guitar sometimes it'll be piano you know various other instruments, but uh, I thought, you know, the, the ukulele has four strings. It's pretty easy to pick up, and I've been playing ever since, and, and I'm leading up our, our praise uh, praise team here at church, and I decided to reach out into the community with it. Uh, a lot of downtown areas do this event called First Friday, where there's a lot of activity and emphasis put on bringing people to the downtown area. And so I will go and play there either out on the street or in particular businesses. And we do also, I go into the nursing homes here in town, the senior center I actually did last month, they were over the moon wow. to have it, but uh, <laughs> and not, not specifically yeah. religious experiences, but, but to be able to interact with a pastor yeah, in a but, positive but way. But unique and connects you to people in a unique way. And that's, that is awesome. Yep. Well, we also, I know you've been involved, uh, Chris, in uh, some other uh, events in the life of the church. And, and we're recording this in June of 2019, kind of annual conference season throughout uh, the whole United Methodism, really. But I know that there, yep. with the gen when general conference happened um, in February of this year, there were some decisions that really uh, were really of us. You know, seismic uh, you know, impact upon a lot of folks, and it really, mm -hmm. really struck you, uh, struck to your heart. It sounds like, and you decided to do something about it. And you uh, tell us what what you decided to do in response to that. I t I was gutted, like many of your listeners, and and many more, even not. I was gutted by 
the experience. And I think like many other even centrist and progressives, I sort of counted on the better angels of people's nature not to let something like this happen, something that could do so much harm to our fellow siblings in Christ. And that that wasn't the case. And so I know that there were people that had tried to put together some sort of organization so that there would be a voting block we could take to try to challenge some of the other caucus groups uh, at gen- when it come to- came time to elect delegates to general conference. And finally, this was the impetus that people said, okay, we really actually got to do something. And so in talking with uh, the, the group I had mentioned earlier, uh, my father-in-law, and uh, I- I'll mention their names. I don't think they mind. Uh, Allison Yankee, who serves at Portland. Uh, Grant Merrill, who's the associate at Auburn and is moving to Colebush in Mishawaka, and Jason Morse, who's the associate at uh, at St. Joe in, in Fort Wayne, uh, we decided we need to do something about it. And, and, you know, all of us have different networks. Many of us were in the residence and ministry program, which is sort of the residency that uh, newly commissioned clergy go through to do some extra learning just before they're ordained. Mm-hmm. And we know a lot of pastors in a lot of, in a lot of the little hamlets and glens all throughout the state, you know, from Hammond to, uh, tell city, you know, that ranging from all over the state. And we said, you know what, let's just reach out and try to get as many people together as possible to make as big an impact on general conference elections at this year's annual conference as possible. And that was before we even knew what uh, was going on with uh, Jerry Rarden's group, Uniting Methodists of Indiana. Uh, and with that and learning of their work with uh, Reconciling Ministries Network, we we got connected with them and we started, I started meeting as the person closest to Indianapolis where the me- meetings took place. Um, we have uh, started working with their steering committee in order to create a slate of delegates and to get the word out about that delegate, th- those delegates, so that we could uh, organize as many voters to support. Uh, yeah. And then that, and that slate. go ahead and share the name of your ticker group. I don't think you've shared that yet. I, I no, I haven't. Uh, it's the Methodist Reclamation Project. You know, we, we worked on that for about 24 hours using a, a messaging app called Marco Polo. It's sort of a video walkie talkie. That's how we have a lot of our conversations. And we just wanted something that, that identified us as Methodists and sort of what we were doing. We don't believe that the broader Methodist church, the connection worldwide is quite representative uh, or represented by the vote that happened at General Conference 2019. Mm. See, we centrists and progressives were concentrated on doing work in our doing ministry in our contexts. Meanwhile, there was an entire machine working on the other side to build the result that happened at General Conference 2019. And so it became it became then a an imperative that we needed to do something about that. And that was why the, the Methodist Reclamation Project was, we thought, a necessity. And the nice thing is, is that we put our uh, our you know, mailing lists, our, our combined powers, you know, in, in the coalition. And I think we have a pretty significant uh, chance of affecting some real change to our uh, delegation. So we're getting organized to move forward to respond to the decision mm-hmm. made in February through the process of, of 
the, in this case, the Indiana annual conference, electing uh, delegates and so on. And then, of course, I don't end up, end up at uh, General Conference 2020. And uh, we'll get to that in a, minute, in a minute. But I I do know that you also took a step forward to get even more involved by being a part of the an event that happened to organize many groups you're really talking about some groups are kind of organized in the state of Indiana, but there's what we're talking about here is, is a movement that is happening really around the country and around the world, really. And a, an expression of that was an event called United Methodist Next or UM Next in Kansas City at Church of the Resurrection a few weeks ago. And you were in, mm-hmm. attend- in attendance there. And I would just like your take on what you felt was the purpose of that particular event and what came out of that event that to, can speak to the issues that you've been talking to? Hey, I know that there has been a lot of ambiguity about that, and, and that was almost by design. I was very happy to go to the uh, UMC Next event, convened by folks like Adam Hamilton and Junius Dotson. And uh, there's a long list that I'm sure I would forget if I tried to name off all of them. But uh, it was made up of people from across the the United the United States United Methodist uh, Church, and I described it in a tweet that was liked by Adam Hamilton, which I, I try to name drop as often as I can. But I described the feeling in the room. <laughs> I described the feeling in the room as fraught but hopeful. Because there were issues that we, you know, we were brought together to talk about the, you know, the big main issue, the harm that was done by the passing of the traditional plan. But there are a lot of other issues that are tied into that issues of racial equality, gender equality, that sort of thing that are all wrapped up uh, alongside these issues of equality for the LGBTQ plus community. And so all of the emotions wrapped up in these, in these different groups were coming together and, and there were people that were really upset. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sat in on a gathering that happened after hours with, uh, United Methodists who had, uh, queer United Methodists who had been, uh, under trial, names you would recognize, and there was some very raw emotion shared out of that. And uh, yeah, there were emotions were very raw, and I think that big gathering was. So you feel like this was, was maybe a, a time. Play. I'm sorry, Chris. You feel like maybe this was a time for no, this, no. so people to get together to express these emotions, to vent, as it were, in order to have a a, a means to move forward. Then, and and perhaps we did the, the the sexuality issue is just kind of a uh, a symptomatic of the deeper deeper flaws in our in our theology and our thinking and in our church. Oh, well, I don't think it is a symptom. It is it is definitely a main part of the disease, but yes, it okay. is it is also talks about it. there are all of these other issues that run alongside it mm-hmm. if that makes more sense and it was sort of ambiguous the reason why we got together but we knew there needed to be some sort of direction that we headed and where we ended up landing was a a mixture of we want to stay and resist and we want to figure out what a new Methodism looks like. And there are a lot of different paths to get there, whether it's leaving outright the denomination or whether it is negotiating some sort of divorce where we take into consideration things like assets. But in the meantime, while all those things are being worked out, 
you know, January 1st is going to be here, whether we like it or not. And the implementation of the traditional plan is going to have real effects. And so the, the twin forks of this uh, staying and resisting and, and figuring out what a new Methodism looks like, it was, was sort of decided upon. And I thought that was the main feeling that I felt, at least in, in my discussion, they broke us into discussion groups with people from across the the, the denomination in this country. And so I sat with people from South Carolina and, and Iowa and all of it was, it was a good time, I, a good time of sharing and uh, learning a lot of different people's experience. And I'll share this, this one thing we were sharing some personal experiences in our table and it got around to me and I was really feeling convicted about the fact that I had stayed silent for so many years and and the the idea of privilege the fact that because of my uh, identity as a straight white man I was afforded you know my my identity was long considered to be the preferred identity and I used that as much as I was sympathetic to the cause of my LGBTQ siblings I used my my privilege to stay safe and secure for the, for my family and everything else. And, and I was really feeling uh, convicted about that. And I, I started to apologize. And this young queer uh, clergy person of color was sitting next to me and said, you know what? You don't need to apologize. That's I, I'm sick of people apologizing. You know what? We're here. This is where we are. We need to, we, we just need you now. If you're here now, that's where we need you to be. And and if I could probably encapsulate what we can do here in the Indiana conference, it would be it. You know, we don't need to worry about so much about where we were, but make sure that we are here for our LGBTQ siblings uh, going forward. And that was uh, one big learning that I yeah. had at, at UMC Next. And part of the here now, being here now, being present now and being convicted as you have shared, um, is your decision to be among those who've uh, put themselves, uh, nominated your names to be a, a candidate to be elected to general conference and, uh, for 2020. And so you are one of many persons who, have, who are of a centrist, um, progressive uh, uh, leaning, I think it's fair to, fair to say, who have said that you're willing, yes, well, willing to serve. So tell me why... Why you? Why now? Why are you willing to serve? And what uh, difference was this going to make? I am still considered a youngish clergy. I guess it depends on the year and where the cutoff date is. Um, and I think my identity as a, I call myself a grandpa millennial. I'm sort of in one of the last years you can be considered a millennial. But uh, I think there are a lot of people in my demographic who have decided that for whatever reason, the the church and faith, the issues of faith and being a person of faith aren't something that moves the needle for them. And I, I, I would like to see that change. You know, I, I would, I would like to see the church and I, I've experienced the success of that in, in congregations that I've served. And, and I think that I can take that perspective to general conference, but I've, I've always sort of felt led to, to be somehow connected to that whole process. I'm a history major and it sort of at being a history major, you, you really sort of pay attention to issues of importance throughout history. And that leads you to understand things like 
like politics and the significance of, of, uh, you know, different parts of our history as, as United Methodists. And so I've always felt sort of a gravitational pull towards that. And when it came time that I was eligible and, and, and all that, it just has culminated in, in where I really feel like this is, this is where I need to be at this particular time in, in my life and in the life of uh, the denomination. Yeah. Well, as a student of history, of course, you know, whether it's in United Methodism or American history or world history, that there are certain moments of time which are defining moments, which are moments where those cracks of history, or whatever you want to call it, where things do shift. It seems to me as mm-hmm. also a student of history and uh, with a little more uh, uh, years to me, I'm among I'm a baby boomer myself. <laughs> but uh, so I was uh, aware when the when some of the general conference stuff was done in 76 that kind of started this whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. And we are in one of those times, I believe, and I think that's what you're sharing too. But every time there's a crack in yeah. history, every time there is this defining moment, it does take people to step forward, to step into the gap, as it were, to use a biblical phrase, in order to make a Absolutely. difference. And you said you're one of these people. But there's a practicality mm-hmm. here, uh practicality here, Chris, and, you know, politics involved and all kinds of other things are involved. <laughs> That's part of the reality that we deal with. Now, I am happen to be mm-hmm. a a voting member of a voting clergy member of the Indiana Conference and will be voting on the delegates here coming up. But I also happen to know that, you know, I'm there is people all across the spectrum, theologically and biblical understanding and uh, uh racial and uh, ethnic backgrounds and sociological backgrounds, mm-hmm. rural, urban, suburban, all kinds of things. Uh, what kind of mm-hmm. sharing would you give to a clergy member of the conference to say that you're, you're the guy or maybe some of the folks that you are also supporting would be the men or women who uh, would be would really represent uh, us well to the general conference? I would say that yeah, you know, I've I've been in ministry for 15 years. Most of that time is is serving uh, small and rural uh, congregations, and always being much more progressive than the people sitting in in the pews that I serve. And I, but I've always been able to do ministry with them despite ways that we might otherwise differ. And as much as we are as a broader society, but even in the church, in our silos, I think that it, it will be ultimately important to, uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily like the term reach out across the aisle, but uh, to be able to speak with folks with whom I disagree and be able to come up with the best possible outcome out of all this, this confusion and, and brokenness that we see out of uh, General Conference. And, and I've had experience having those con- those conversations and I've experienced the the tough parts where I've said something from the pulpit and people have been upset and, and bridging gaps to bring people back into the fold as a result. And so I think my experience with that in, in, in the pulpit and, and, and especially the, uh, in discussions and relationship with clergy across the, the state and the denomination, I think that that uniquely qualified, I don't think, necessarily sums it up, but I have that experience and I, I, I'm willing and I have the desire to see the best for the church because well, this church without my, you know, without me having met that beautiful redhead so long ago, 
I don't even think I'd be in the faith still. This this church means so much to me, and I think that that I that that all sort of culminates in in someone who would, no matter what, do what's best for <clears throat> for the church and, and and all in it. Well, let's go. Let's, I hope that doesn't sound too grandiose. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, it's perfect in the sense of you have shared that you're willing to go where a lot of people are not willing to go in terms of having those difficult conversations. And I'd like to go just a little bit deeper and probe a little bit deeper here with you, Chris, about, mm-hmm. about a time when you've had one of those difficult conversations. I can't, I imagine if you've been in ministry any length of time and taking any kind of stands that you've had, you've had to have some challenging conversations with some parishioners or perhaps other clergy that have centered around, among other things, human sexuality whatever it is, but mm-hmm. unpack for a little bit how right. you, uh, maybe you don't have to give names, of course, but tell me a little bit about one of those conversations that you may have had and and how that went and how it came out. Well, I'll tell you, I'm actually still in the midst of one of those conversations and I'm working my way through them. I have uh, a member of the church who came to me in January and said, you know, I just don't even know why we're having the vote. I know what scripture says and, and, you know, arguments that we both and and even your listeners have, have heard, you know, why we're even having these discussions. And I'm still where I have shared my perspective that, you know, it, it, it takes more than the clobber verses to understand what God says about sexuality and what we need to understand about a healthy human expression of that very intimate and important part of our identities as, as human beings. And I'm still working through that. It has been uncomfortable. He has sat across from me in my, my office and, and, and flatly told, told me, I just, I just don't understand why this is an issue. And I've said, well, I, I do understand where you're coming from on that. Uh, but I also know that there are people that you sit next to on Sunday morning that while they do agree with you, uh, generally speaking, on the things that you read about the Bible, they they understand and and not only understand uh, other people's points of view, but but have experienced the experienced the real life implications of having a loved one who has come out to them, having a loved one who has been denied uh, having a having the marriage rights done in the church that they've grown up in. Uh, and and so he's he's still not on board, but that's that's probably the the most difficult conversation that I've had. Mm-hmm. I have had at least in my current uh, in my current appointment, I've had a handful of conversations where this is concerned. And even though a couple have uh, come around to understanding that maybe they're not where I am as far as a, theolo- a theology of inclusivity, but they see how. Uh, Things like the traditional plan and, and our uh, the the way our discipline is is working with people in the LGBT uh, plus community that 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 harm is done and they that they need to change where they are for their benefit. Sure. Well, let me ask and this. So it, yeah. Let me ask this about those conversations. Are they still happening? What I mean by that? Have these conversations you're having <laughs> with the difficult people have they end up being walled off and people going up through the silos, or are you still? having conversation? Is there still a relationship? I, I There's still a relationship. I'm still having, well, there are, let me say, there have been a couple throughout my ministry where it, the conversation has been cut off. There's not been 
any ability to reconcile beyond those differences. Mm -hmm. But uh, I have had many parishioners that I still have very fruitful relationships with that disagree with me wholeheartedly. In fact, I will see probably two or three of them from two or three different appointments when we <laughs> when we're down in uh, in Indianapolis for annual conference. But uh, but yeah, there are. There are some people that I do maintain that relationship awesome. with, but some do. Yeah. And they just can't see past it. Well, awesome. I just and I, under, I I do understand that I still I, this is my big my big thing is whenever I do have these conversations. And just side note, we we don't have these conversations as broadly as we need to. We haven't, and we still don't, and we're going to need to no matter what happens, you know, going forward after the the elections in, in annual conference 2019 or general conference 2020, we don't have these conversations and we need to. And that's been part of the problem. You know, this discussion has should have been happening for the last four decades, but it hasn't been. And so my, I, my conscience hasn't allowed me to not speak about it. And it's sure. caused some trouble for me in, in certain, in certain areas with certain people in the church. But uh, yeah, of course. my goal is to make sure that no matter what conversation I have with someone, I can still sit with them when their husband or wife has died, when they have lost a loved one, when they are going through their difficult times. And that's, I think, what we need to keep in mind sure. as, as well, clergy and lady, we still need to be able to pastor these folks even beyond the differences where this is concerned. Sometimes that's not going to be able to happen. I think we can have that happen. Yes. Broadly, we just have to be more pastoral in our approach. Well, life uh, seems to happen on a pretty regular basis, and uh, and sometimes <laughs> that will tend to uh, to break down our silos a little bit uh, uh, when a crisis happens mm -hmm. or when uh, a life happens and ministry needs to come to the forefront. And somehow or another, I think it's going to have to be a God thing, of, of course. But uh, these I don't have a Absolutely. I don't have I don't have a great metaphor here, Chris. But the meta, the thing I'm thinking of <laughs> is the silos somehow need to be uh, knocked down and all the grain mixed together or something like that. But uh, but uh, we, the only way that's we, as good as anything. Yeah, yeah, the only way can we can get there is by <laughs> continuing these conversations and the difficult ones that we have. But one of the reasons we have these difficult conversations these days is because we haven't had those a lot in the past, and then also because we now are seeing the obvious evidence of pain and hurt and harm, and you used the word gutted earlier, how many people are feeling gutted, mm -hmm. especially people in the LGBTQ community and others. And I imagine you've seen, mm -hmm. you've not only experienced this yourself, but I bet you've seen it or experienced it. And I just would like for you to share uh, just for a second where you have seen evidence of this sense of loss or this sense of pain that's that's out there in our church and how that impacted you uh talking with uh, a friend ordained friend uh a queer clergy person and you know walking walking him through that reality you know what what does it look like now that the church has essentially it essentially put a target on his back. There had been sort of a, a light outline before, but now it's a, a big red target. And just listening to it, even folks that we uh, went to Kansas City with, listen, just hearing the voices crack when they talk about not, you know, talk about the first Sunday they went into church after the, the vote and and having to having to get up and preach 
that Sunday after the vote was there have been a couple of real difficult sermons I've preached in my life. The first one was the one I, I did after I came back from uh, being on leave after my son had died. That was a difficult sermon to preach. The probably ranks up there in the top three or four would be the one I preached right after a general conference. I I was it still reeling like many of us were and, and just not quite understanding how we could treat fellow creatures of sacred worth mm-hmm. in such a way. And, and there's a lot of words that come to mind, sure. but, but gutted was, I mean, that, that, that very visceral and real feeling that you felt yeah. in the pit of your stomach. Once you saw that, that vote pop up on the screen, watching the live stream, I, I did, I watched the live stream of general conference. That was I mean, probably the geekiest thing I've done in my life, but wow. I did it. And uh, it was that watching that moment was as, as gutted as I had been. In the life yeah, of and then after after all that, still have to proclaim the gospel, and that's what I sometimes call those, uh, you know, lump in the throat or swallow hard sermons when you have to just yeah. gut it up and and go for it as well, and absolutely try to, to try to still be faithful because we are people who live in God's grace regardless of the circumstances, and we have to uh, express that. On the opposite side of this here, Chris, is this. Um, you also mentioned a phrase that you learned in this process called fraught, but hopeful. And uh, I'd mm-hmm. like you to speak for a minute, Chris, about what you see as signs of hope in the midst of this time, which some have described as fraught. What signs of hope? In, in previous cycles where we have seen that... Uh, folks and and I I have tried to stay away from the specific names but you know, the 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 organizations leading into that which we call the WCA now there's previous cycles where we've just seen people be elected that we know aren't going to vote for the you know for resolutions and and pieces of legislation that that we that we would vote for but uh, but seeing that after cycle after cycle but now seeing the movement happening not just from other pretty progressive people like me, but from folks in the center who (laughs) for years you would have thought would have been sympathetic to something like the traditional plan passing, but have come around because they have been so moved by the actual human toll that things like the traditional plan take and seeing people being moved to action has given me, has given me hope. And and that that I've been excited by that, and uh, it's given me the the energy to you know spend time doing a little more driving to Indianapolis than I normally do, spending a little more time networking through you know through Facebook, social media, calling, emailing, that sort of thing. It's it's really built me, given me given me extra gas in the tank to to do this stuff because I know that people are being woken up in a way they haven't been before. And that is heartening to me. Yes. Well, it certainly seems that any uh, sense of complacency has been uh, uh, shattered among many and many people are mm-hmm. stepping forward to say, uh, here, you know, here I stand here, here I am. And that's part of what you're doing. And we appreciate you doing, uh, doing that, Chris. And uh, we would just, yeah. uh, just one more thing then we'll, we'll let, let you go here. What's not said a lot in this conversation we have in the church is how this whole conversation regarding, oh, schism of the church and human sexuality and biblical interpretation and all the things we are talking about now, 
what impact that has upon the folks in our community who are not connected to any church or to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, as we say. And uh, what would you what would you say uh, to that person who may be exploring faith, who may be kind of like you were when you met that red haired uh, woman, Emily, and her, <laughs> her uh, father and transform your life? As you said a few, little while ago, you said, did you may very well be an atheist now? What would you say to that person in a similar position if you were then now who this may be a distraction to? How do we get focused? Speak to that person. Speaking to that person, I relationship building. That's I need to be Jesus to them. They they may see this and what I have told even people in my congregation, you know, it's this is unfortunately distracting. Um, then not unfortunately distracting. That sounds much more, much more terrible than I, I mean it to. But uh, what what we're not doing when we're when we're having to fight the harm done to our LGBTQ siblings is we're missing the harm that is being done in our communities around us. And when the people that aren't connected to the church don't see the church reaching out to, you know, reaching out and speaking to the opioid crisis, reaching out and, uh, you know, serving poor families in, in, in their community, bringing the hope of Christ to their communities. There's that dissonance there. And, and I would say, I would tell them, hold on. I've, I've, I've held on through, through Really, I, I've seen this ever since I've been a United Methodist, this this conflict we've had over over human sexuality. And and while it has been eminently frustrating, I am I'm a Jesus person. I, I am a, I'm a I'm a, pe- a people of the way guy. And I there is still. There is still that within me that just I need to be Jesus to people. I, I use this phrase in my preaching being outposts of the gospel in a culture, in a society that is very easily just let us go off into our corners and argue amongst ourselves. They've been very happy to let us do it. And we have not only lost an important seat at the cultural table, but we've lost any credibility. Our job as the church now is to build that credibility back up. And I try to do that through building relationships with people. There are plenty of people that I have met in Wabash that uh, know I'm a pastor. They don't necessarily know where uh, I pastor, but uh, my goal is, yeah, you know what? Eventually, maybe I'll, I'll invite them to the church, but they need to know that I am a, that, that I am a, a person that they can trust, that they can count on, that they can like. Maybe they don't, maybe they won't always agree. Maybe they're not even uh you know, maybe they're agnostic atheists. They just need to see Christ in and through me. And uh, that, that, is, that would be my hope for that person who is exploring, who sure. hasn't uh, found the faith yet. That would be my hope is that they, they would see Jesus through me. They would, they would see that in, in the way that I comport myself as a person of faith, that somehow they would be so convinced as well. Well, I think to do the same, that they would see the efficacy of it in their lives. Sure. Well, I think this issue of the primacy of grace and seeing Jesus and building building those personal relationships is first and foremost. And the, that has to uh, we have to be motivated by that and over to deal with the distractions in order to help people then 
move from that personal relationship that we have to a relationship with Christ, which is what this is really all about. That's why our church exists in order to get Absolutely. people to know Christ. So we appreciate you being with us and sharing your, your story here, Chris, today. And it's been an honor uh, talking to you. Our guest today on the United Methodist uh, People podcast, where it is our mission to strengthen the connection through conversation and commentary, has been Reverend Chris Tiedemann, pastor at Christ United Methodist Church in Wabash, Indiana, and organizer of the Methodist Reclamation Project. Thanks again to Chris Tiedemann, pastor at Christ United, United Methodist Church in Wabash, Indiana, and the founder of the Methodist Reclamation Project for being our guest today on the United Methodist People podcast. Just a couple of takeaways from our conversation and a one follow-up with our conversation. He did run for general conference to become a general conference delegate, was not elected to that, but was elected to be a delegate to the North Central Jurisdictional Conference in 2020. And of course, Jurisdictional Conference has primary responsibility for electing uh, and assigning bishops. So we congratulate him on that. But I did want to talk to you just a minute about a couple of takeaways from our conversation I think are important. That Chris is really concerned about what a new Methodism looks like and how to respond, how the church needs to respond to the uh, to the approval of the, of the traditional plan and the implementation of the traditional uh, plan. And he's struggling with his idea of kind of his idea of privilege, being a, a white male pastor, in dealing with folks of color and folks of uh, uh, in the gay lesbian uh, community, and but he was assured that by some others that he did have a place to play that we all have a voice to play right now and to move the needle forward and what uh, needs to be done. He sees himself as a grandpa millennial. The needs of millennial folks are and how many of them are frustrated with the, the state of the church right now, and he believes that his input and his his interactions can help move the needle to move to help the church meet the needs of millennial people. Bridging the gap, as it were, between the silos that people are in, and is willing and desirable to see change in the church and to do what is best for that to happen. He's witnessed the pain in the church among gay lesbian folks, and he's walked with some of those folks through this painful process, the gutted feeling that they've had, and that's been part of the process for him to get more and more involved. But he sees the future of the church, as I thought this was an interesting turn of a phrase, as fraught but hopeful, for signs of hope, of a movement happening among centrist and progressive folks, and seeing people move to action, because he's really all about his relationship with Jesus. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Chris Tiedemann today. If you'd like to find out more about the United Methodist People podcast, go to our website, unitedmethodistpodcast.com. There we have uh, back episodes of the podcast you may find uh, helpful to you and your ministry, as well as the free gift, The Methodist Way presentation. My name is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. It's a pleasure to have you with me as our mission here at the United Methodist People podcast is to continue to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. Until next time, let me leave you with the good words from John Wesley. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, and all the ways you can, and all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission 
of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. And always do all the good you can.